Well, it's a joy to be back with y'all again. Um, grateful for the invitation. Grateful for y'all's support in the gospel. Um, yeah, on behalf of me and Shai and all the saints up at Risen Christ Fellowship, uh, grace to you and peace um, from God our Father. Um, creation is pregnant with fingers pointing to God-honoring truth. Existence is stuffed with pointers intending to direct attention to glory and faithfulness to God. There are pointers that God has hidden in creation, lessons disguised in fixed laws, in people, in animals, even plants. So in Isaiah 55, uh, verse 10 through 11, God extracts a lesson from the snow and the rain. So verse 10 of Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In Psalm 103, God uses the the mercy of a regular loving dad. It's the good old-fashioned loving dad to highlight his mercy as a heavenly father. Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. If you struggle with laziness at your job and you want to better honor God in your work, God says in Proverbs 6.6, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Perhaps you're ignorant of Satan and the cruelty of our adversary. Well, in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Perhaps if you're here today and you're not a Christian, so you don't know Jesus, you don't know what the whole Savior thing is all about, we welcome you. But there's illustrations for you as well. Maybe looking over your life, you're thinking, hey, I ain't that bad that I need to be saved. I mean, surely I'm not perfect, but I'm not like need to be saved imperfect. Well, we believe God is holy and he's of a purity that is beyond our ability to comprehend. He's so high above, we don't get how holy he is. And he knows that. So in considering how do I communicate to them what their life outside of me is like? What's kind of the best that sinners can do without God? Is it that bad? Well, God reserves one of the more graphic pointers for that to help people see how offensively insufficient good deeds outside of God are. We get Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That phrase, polluted garment, doesn't mean like a dirty rag you washed your car with. It's more grotesque than that. 
It's a menstrual rag for a woman's cycle. So God even uses that to point to how unrighteous we are outside of him. He says, what's the perfect picture for a sinner's good deeds? And he says, a a pile of used tampons. The point is clear, isn't it? It's intended to be. The meaning is plain and emphasized. Creation is loaded with these pointers. It's a storehouse full of them to spiritual realities. And Jesus does this type of explanation all the times in the Gospels. Specifically in the Gospel of John, which we're going to be looking at today. So chapter 3, he uses a historical event, Moses um, lifting up the bronze serpent. He talks about a well in John 4 and how he can provide a well that um, quenches the thirst. A meal in John 6, a shepherd in John 10, and here a vine. And really it's God's mercy to use such easy to grasp things to communicate the most weighty and most profound of matters. What an appeal that God desires to be understood. That he would take something as simple as a vine and make it a teacher for us. And no mistake, you know, a vine in the hand of Jesus is still an easy teacher, but that doesn't make what it teaches easy to hear or less weighty. So let's look at such a lesson from such a vine. If you have your Bible, join me in John chapter 15. That's the Gospel of John chapter 15. So New Testament, first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the last one. Um, John chapter 15. And go ahead and say amen when you get there. Okay. What about the other 50 of y'all? Y'all there? We're there? Okay. This is going to be tug of war. Amen. Let's read. This is the Lord Jesus talking. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. Well, there's a lot here. I'm just trying to prep you all. Um, (laughs) But let's start at verse 11. Lest we miss the tone of what he's saying. Verse 11 is clear what his intentions are for telling us this. It's not that we'd be further troubled. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We have a God who cares about our joy. He wants us to have the most precious joy, the best joy, his joy. So he tells us stuff so we'll have his joy. He tells us things so we'll have his joy. Things for joy. And it's not just things in 15. I think this begins um, previously in chapter 13 and following, but certainly it includes 15. So we want to consider what things Jesus has said for our joy. Things Jesus has said for our joy. For if you're a note taker, here's the three things we'll consider. Things concerning abiding. Things concerning abiding. Things concerning fruit. So things consider bearing fruit. And then lastly, things concerning love. Things concerning love. But let's begin with things about abiding. Things about abiding. So... Look here in verse um, 1 and 2, and the metaphor begins with a negative example contrasted with a good one, right? And how God responds to both. So Jesus sets up the scene. All right, I'm talking about a vine. We got a vine, we got fruit, we got branches. I'm the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. The Father, he's the vine dresser. And the Father acts on branches. He does things to branches. He does things to the bad branch. There's a bad branch. There's a type of branch that's in him that doesn't got no fruit. It's a fruitless branch. And he says the father, the vine dresser, takes it away. That's how the father treats the bad branch. But we see God deals differently with the good branch. There's another branch. There's a branch in him that bears fruit. And he prunes that branch so that it bears more fruit. He has... One purpose for the unfruitful branch, another purpose for the fruitful branch. He removes from them both. One he utterly removes and one he removes that he might add to it. So we are provided in this metaphor two examples. The son, the father, and then there's us. Now, no doubt the disciples, when they heard this, did not have clarity as to which branch they were. The disciples, like us, aren't the quickest on our feet when Jesus says something. And they probably were thinking, well, if Jesus is talking about there's branches in him that he's going to get rid of, and then there's branches in him that he's going to bless, which one am I? Am I a good one? Am I a bad one? I think Jesus wants them to be sure. He wants them to be confident. You get verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I think Jesus is saying that because he knows that they're troubled. They're perplexed. They want to know which branch they are. And this word for clean in verse 3 is, has the same root as the word prune. So it's the same idea. So we shouldn't think kind of 
In verse 3, he's talking about washings, as in he does in John chapter 13, when he's talking about taking a bath, washing. This should be understood in terms of the metaphor. We're talking about cleaning a branch so that it'll bear more fruit. That's what pruning is, cleaning a branch. And Jesus is saying, nah, you're the fruitful branches. You are clean. Even right now, you're clean. No doubt, they hear that the Father's going in, taking away branches. They're perplexed. At this time, the disciples didn't know what Jesus was talking about, almost about anything. So in John chapter 6, whenever some of the disciples leave Jesus, Jesus turns to his disciples and say, what, y'all going to dip too? And Peter, our spokesperson, he gives him the great answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answers him with something weird, though. So the next verse, Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Skirt. Later, John chapter 13, they're sitting around. Jesus is doing a washing. Peter, yet again, our spokesperson, <laughs> wash all of me. Jesus tells him, no, 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 you're clean, but not all of you are clean. Because the Bible says he knew that one of you will betray me. But the disciples didn't even know which one that is. Now, you would think if you was with Jesus, y'all would know which one was the one that was going to betray Jesus. So when Jesus says, one of y'all is a devil, you would think they'd be like, Psh, it's him. Or here, when Jesus says, you are clean, but not all of you. That they would have been like, <laughs> he's always sleeping when Jesus is talking. But they genuinely do not know. So look at John chapter 13. <laughs> John chapter 13, look at verse 21. So Jesus is just told about cleansing, that he's given them an example of what they ought to do. And then the Bible says in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testify, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. But look at the next verse, verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I like verse 23 and 24. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, this would be the apostle John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. One of you will betray me. They're like, who it is? And Peter's like, go ask him. Go ask him. And it's funny because even after Jesus explains who I hand this to and leaves is him, Judas leaves and they still don't know. Verse 29. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need. They don't know. And God does not want us to not know. Hence, Jesus looking them in the eyes and saying, no, 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 you're clean. He's not going to take you away. Already, you're clean. And notice Judas is gone at this point and he doesn't add the amplifier. <laughs> not all of you. <laughs> They're clean. 
But he doesn't just want them to know they're clean. He wants to know them why they're clean. What makes them fruitful branches unlike others? And he says this right there. It's in verse 3. Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, Jesus can just tell somebody they're clean and they're clean. This is what happens at healings, right? Jesus runs up on somebody who's not clean, and he tells them, you're clean, and then they're clean then, forward. They're injured. He says, you're healed, and then they're healed from then forward. The power of his word does it. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I don't think he's just saying, you're clean because I just said you're clean. That wouldn't be consistent with the image of the vine. So the point of the vine is to give us a simple amplifier to make it plain. You're clean, you're pruned, you'll bear fruit. You're in me and fruitful. And the question we want to ask is, what's the difference between a branch in him that's fruitless and a branch in him that's fruitful? That gets the you're clean. What's the big difference there? Because if they're both in him, how can two branches be in the vine? And one be taken away because it's fruitless. And one be preserved, cleaned, cultivated to be more fruitful. Well, there's a relationship that these disciples had to his word that Jesus wants us to know. It's not just that his word went out, it's just that his word went out and landed in a different way than it went out and landed on the bad branch. This is the, the point of, you think about John's gospel. John's gospel ends with telling us this is what the book's about. So John 20, verse 31. When John's talking about, why did I write this book just now? He says this, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's how the gospel of John begins. So John 1, 12 through 13. To all who did receive him, what does that mean to receive him? Who believed in his name? He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not the will of man, but of God. But we see also in John's gospel that there's some examples of people not staying, that believe but don't stay. So John 6, John 6, Jesus telling them, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and that bothered some of them. So in John 6, verse 63 through 65, I mean 66, excuse me, it is the Spirit who gives life. This is Jesus talking again. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Well, look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Go to John 12. John 12, 42. Jesus rebuking the unbelief of the people, it tells us, John 12, verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. They believed. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
Verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And then we have the potent example of Judas, who believed but didn't believe. What are we to do with these? What's the relationship? Well, I think Jesus is trying to let them know there's a, there's a difference between believing and believing. One is fruitful, one is fruitless. One God rejects, one God protects. What do you do with his word? And Jesus, no doubt, he goes on later to say in John 17 about these disciples, what he means by them, what they've done up to this point is they've done something different. They haven't just believed a word, they've believed his word. They've kept his word. So John 17, verse 6, Jesus, in speaking of his disciples that he's praying for here, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me. Out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Believing at a time, believing in a moment, is not the belief that Jesus says is fruitful. And he's talking about branches, right? So if there's a branch and that branch separates itself from the vine in any way, shape, or form, it might have been having a fruit once, had a little fruit, a little blossom, and the second it gets removed from that vine, it's dead. There's, it doesn't have the ability to bear fruit. And Jesus says, if you're, a, if you're a branch in the vine and you got no fruit, you're not in the vine. You're attached to the vine. You're not in the vine. You don't believe in me. But not so with them. They're clean because of his word. They've kept it. They believed it. It seems to be the difference between a fruitful branch and unfruitful branch. So it should be no surprise that in verse 4 we get to the command to abide. What does abide even mean? So we don't use abide. I don't use abide, I should say, ever. We don't ask someone, where do you abide? Hey man, where you at? I'm just abiding over at Starbucks for a minute. So we might miss, I think, what he's saying. So we want to understand the context. Where is Jesus talking about? What's going on? Judas just left. He's starting the immediate events that is going to slay the Son of God. And Jesus has literally moments before they come for him. And he tells him, I'm leaving you. I've been with you. I'm not going to be with you anymore. They're troubled by it. He says, don't worry. I'm going to send someone to you. So you won't, I won't be with you, but I will be in you. But again, they don't understand. So what Jesus is trying to help them understand is, though I'm gone, you must remain in belief. 
abide. You must abide in belief. You must abide in my words, my words that come to you, my words that came to you, my words that will come to you. You must abide in belief. Persecutions on the next chapter. Jesus between the door of the spirit and persecution. And how do you, how do you both love those whom is the Lord's, whom he died for, and how do you exist in a world and display the glory of God, but through abiding in him, remaining in him, staying in him. You must remain, abide in me. It's more than just be in me right now, because he's talking future. I'm about to leave. You're with me right now. When I leave, stay in me. It's weird language. I'm about, to, I'm about to leave you. You need to stay with me. And he tells us a reason. He tells us a reason. It's obvious. It's there in verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's no way. It's not possible for a branch to bear fruit without a vine. It's that simple. That's the reason he uses the illustration. Y'all know a vine, right? You know a branch, right? Take the branch off the vine. Does it live? Is it fruitful? He says, no. He says, neither can you unless you abide in me. You must remain properly connected to me. Jesus says, respect the relationship. Just like a branch needs an abiding or a remaining source of life to bear fruit, so do Christians if they want to live a God-honoring life. They need a consistent and abiding source of life. The picture is plain, and yet Jesus begins to teach what is already plain. Verse 5, I am the vine. So just in case one of them thought, well, maybe I'm a vine. Jesus says, you're not. I'm a vine. You're the branches. The source of life isn't within the branch. It's in the vine. Again, Jesus isn't trying to equip them with a salvation, um, with salvation categories. Is this once saved, always saved? Is this somebody losing their salvation? It's not what he's answering or addressing at all. What Jesus is saying is very simple. You must remain in me. You must endure in me. You cannot just believe me then. You must believe me. You must not just believe that about me. You must believe me. Is this not the Great Commission? Go. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of God. And then what? Teach them to abide, to observe all that he said, to believe. John 1, 4, in him was the life. John 14, 6, Jesus, in speaking of himself, I am the life. Life for a branch is dependent on the life in the vine. And Jesus is 
drawing out, emphasizing that connection where the branch hits the vine. What makes that connection happen is belief in his word. That little nudge, that's when the branch connects with the vine, that's belief in his word. Or if it's just hanging up there and not receiving any nourishment. You must continue to believe. Hebrews um, chapter 10. There's many things that would challenge us or call us away from abiding. For John 6, for those disciples, it was some of the stuff Jesus said. They didn't like it. Some of us will be tempted just by stuff we don't like. Jesus says you must remain. For the Pharisees or the authorities at the time, they feared man. They feared man more than God. They wanted glory for man more than God. So they can believe what Jesus said, but they wouldn't abide. Suffering. Jesus gave this illustration. There's tribulations that's going to come, and it can, it can beat down a plant and kill it. Persecutions. Being ostracized. Any variety of sufferings. Hebrews 10, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. You have need of abiding, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He has no fruit. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We must be of those who remain in Christ, remain in belief. Brothers and sisters, no abiding in the vine, no remaining belief in the word. You have no fruit at all. Which is why Jesus goes in to talk about fruit. Things about abiding and things about fruit. He tells us some things about fruit that are interesting. There's assumption in this text that we want to bear fruit. That we would like to be found fruitful. There's not a branch that doesn't want to bear fruit. It's an assumption. We want to prove that we believe. We want to show that God is glorious. We want to show that God is good. We want to show that we know him. It's a reflex for a Christian. Jesus said this is why he did what he did for the Father, John 14, 31. But I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Not only is it assumed, it's specifically assumed because it brings glory to God. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear fruit. It's assuming this type of branch believing in Jesus wants to bear fruit. He's telling God has glorified that. But we do want to understand what is fruit. What does he mean by fruit? How do we bear fruit? Is he talking about grapes? Now he doesn't explain what the fruit is. I think it's kind of interesting. 
Okay, I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. Verse 1, verse 5. The Father, he's the vine dresser. Verse 1. Y'all, you're the branches. Verse 5. You, you're the clean branches. Verse 3. Now, what's the fruit? What does it mean to bear fruit? We should know. We should want to know. If we want to have them. I think there's a general sense where all Christian fruit is good fruit. Again, as we were reading in uh, Galatians, <laughs> this, is, this is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of conversions even, good fruit. Jesus uses that in John 12, unless I die. If a seed doesn't go to the ground and die, it doesn't bear fruit. But I think he means something different about this fruit, though that's certainly included. There's a categorical statement. We have to remember where the text is. It finds itself in the middle of a discourse. It's at night. Jesus is being betrayed. The hours are short between when he'll be arrested, when he'll be tried, when he'll be crucified. The mood couldn't be more solemn. His disciples are depressed. He has to encourage them to not be troubled two or three times in the last chapter. Well, in John 13, 31, after Judas leaves, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I told the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. They're discouraged. They're depressed, certainly. The one that they had not left, as Peter says, he says, I'm now leaving them. But look at verse 34. Not only does Jesus tell them that he's leaving them, he gives them something new to do. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what do you think Jesus means? Is this any different than what they had been doing? Why is it a new thing? I think it's connected to the bearing fruit in 15. I think that's obvious because chapter 15, verse 12, (laughs) he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. So these are are brackets. These are connected. What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, the short answer is it means a lot. I think it means a lot. But I don't think that a lot is supposed to be burdensome. After all, verse 11, these things are for our joy. How has Jesus loved us? How has Jesus loved us? Because he says that's the paradigm. Love each other as I have loved you. So how has Jesus loved us? It'd be impossible for us to exhaust that list, right? 
John says at the end of this gospel, he couldn't even write all the things Jesus did while he was alive, let alone the implications of them for those who believe. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what he has prepared for them. Which would lead me to believe that this command isn't intended to be an exhaustive list, but a categorical orientation. I don't think Jesus means literally every single way you can fathom I've loved you, you must do. Though certainly that'd be included as long as you can think it. If it's love, do it. We're used to thinking about love as an affection, but sometimes we don't think about love as having an aim. Certainly Jesus came to us in love. He lived with us in love, died for us in love, was raised for us in love. He intercedes for us in love. He will bring us to God in love. We will be the community of love. While this is certainly in view... And I think they serve as potent expressions of his love. I think there's something more categorical that Jesus is talking about. How had Jesus loved them? Specifically up to this point even. Well, the Gospel of John is super clear about what Jesus did to love them. He has made God known to us that we would have life in him. That was Jesus's, Jesus came because we did not know him. No one knows the father except for me. I came so that you would know him. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is why Jesus died, right? Because in our sin, we perish. We die away from him. We wouldn't know him. But he perished for us so that we'd have life. But what is eternal life? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God, to know Jesus. And he lets us know that life is abundant. That is what his word is, right? It is the knowledge of him, the commands of God, the way to God. And as we'll think about a little bit more, a way to keep us in God. And all to the glory of God. How do we know God but by his word? So we glorify God by having our joy filled up through and in knowing him. We know that's true because Jesus said that in verse 11. He's told us these things that we know them so we'd have joy. That's not John Piper, that's Jesus. Right? Joy. He wants us to have joy in knowing him knowing him rightly and believing in him. This was Jesus' aim for the disciples, that their joy would be full in knowing God. And he now commissions them to have it be their aim for each other as well. It's a crazy paradigm. Jesus says, the Father loved me, and I love him, so I tell him to you. And I love you and you love me, so tell me to y'all. 
it's supposed to be in our minds in John 15 and thinking about bearing fruit. To, one, to love one another as Christ loved us. Verse 15, um, chapter 15, 8 is connected to chapter 13, 35. Just look at the logic again in chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. The Father is glorified when we prove to be his disciples, which is bearing much fruit. What does Jesus say in 1335? How do we prove that we're his disciples? Our love for one another. That reflects and images his love for us. And I think it helps the vine picture even more. To show Christ-like love to Christ's people requires a Christ vine. Fueled by the love of Christ. Jesus, I have come to you to make known the glory of the Father through my love for you. Go and do likewise. So we find in John 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. To know God is to want God's glory to be known. to cherish him, to share his aim. Jesus said, this is how you know me and the Father are one. I say what he said. I don't do nothing without him. Jesus, the Son of God, said, I don't do anything without the Father. And it's evidence of his love for him. I have the Father's glory in mind. I have the Father's aim in mind that he might be known. This is the fruit we are after. Even whenever we want to show love, isn't that the end of that love we're trying to show? Even when we're trying to be gentle, isn't that gentleness the end? I mean, isn't God's glory the end of that gentleness we're trying to exhibit? We want it to be pointers to the love of Christ. How can a church love each other? How can a church display the glory of God? They must abide in Christ. They must remain in belief in his word. Whoever abides in me, this is verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in his word, believing in him, because if you do, you'll bear fruit. And if you don't, you won't. And then he gives us two different examples of ifs. Verse 6 and (laughs) 7. Now again, he said you can't do nothing. You can do nothing. You can't muster up a grape of grace without Jesus. Look at verse 6. If, see verse 6 starts with that if, verse 7 starts with that if, and again, this is again the bad branch and the good branch. Bad branch first, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. 
like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned, desolate, barren, doomed to destruction. He says, come on, you know the logic. What good are dead branches? They're no good. They're thrown into fires. They're kindling wood. To malfunction in the most essential of ways is an indication of corruption. If a branch in a vine yields no fruit, it revolts against the purpose for which it's designed. As such, it's worthy of being destroyed. And this is a pointer. This is what hell is, the great destruction. Those made in God's image who yield no worship to God, they revolt against the purpose of their design, which is to reflect, to image, to adore, to know him. And as the ruin for the branches is, so will the ruin be for all image bearers of God who refuse to bear fruit to his glory and would rather dry up in their sin. Their end will be the same, thrown away like a branch, withering, gathered up, thrown into the fire and burned. And if that's you, if you're a person separated from God, if you're a fruitless person, if you don't worship God, you don't like him, you don't want to know him, don't care to at all, it's a revolt against purpose. God is a good vine dresser. So he removes bad branches. But God is a merciful vine dresser. This is why Jesus comes. Jesus comes as a way for bad branches to become good branches through belief in his word. I'm here so you don't perish. That's what Jesus said. He sent me. He, vine dresser, sent me so you won't have to perish. But that you'll have everlasting life in the vine. That invitation is to all. You don't have to be cut off of sin, tossed into destruction. He would rather you to abide forever with him. And belief in his word is the way. Apart from me, you can do nothing but look at verse 7, if you abide in me. And then he adds a little, there's a little something he adds there. If you abide in me, and where did this come from? And my words abide in you. It's the same if you abide in me and I in you. You abide in Jesus, you believe his word, his word is in you. But look at the, what you can do. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you see the contrast between verse 6 and 7? Don't abide in Jesus. Nothing but judgment. Abide in Jesus. His word abiding in you. There's nothing you don't get. You can do all things through him. Ask whatever you wish. Now, a word about prayer. <laughs> Some may be wondering, does this mean you can ask whatever you wish? No. Um, it does not. Which is why I wanted to start with bearing fruit. What does that mean? What is the aim? What's the Christian's aim? 
Galatians 2.20. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. God's aim governs our requests. And Jesus models this in John 12. He's about to die, chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, the Lord says, and what shall I say? Or what shall I ask? Father, save me from this hour? Surely Jesus gets everything he asks for. He does. It's true. Everything he asks for. Granted, he says what? I'm going to ask God to save me? He says, but for this person, purpose I have come. God's purpose governs my request. There are things Jesus would not ask for because it was opposed to the purposes of God. No, he changed his request, right? Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, amen. And I think this gives some clarity to what Jesus is talking about, that we get whatever we ask. There's a new, we're in him. He's in us. It's his way. We don't live for us. Everything is different in Jesus, and it ought to be so in prayer. We don't just ask God for anything as if our agenda is what we live for. We don't live for our agenda. We live for his. Ask. Do you need strength to fight sin? If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Do you need strength to fight sin? 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, my sanctification, that I abstain from sexual immorality. Lord, help me. It will be done for you. Do you want to understand the scriptures? Father, open my eyes to see wonderful things from your law. It will be done for you. You have a problem, wives, submitting to your husbands. Father, I'm told to submit to my own husband as unto you. For your glory, help me, and it will be done for you. Husbands, do you need help loving your wife? Father, I'm to love my wife even as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. Help me to not be harsh with her, and it will be done for you. Jesus says, abide in me, my word abide in you, and ask whatever, and it is done. So when Jesus says, forgive them, Father, it was done for him. Psalm 37, 4, we read it earlier. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Anybody with a child knows it's stupid to give kids everything they ask for. It's incredibly stupid. 
It's right when they start sounding more like you that you're inclined to grant their request. Outside of Christ, nothing. Inside of Christ, everything. Outside of Christ, wrath. Abiding in Christ, salvation. Outside of Christ, despair. Inside of Christ, hope. Out of Christ, those who do some good, your sinners. Inside of Christ, though we sin, saints. Outside of Christ, good deeds, filthy rags. But abiding in Christ, clothed in the righteousness of God. Outside of Christ, utter death. Inside of Christ, eternal life. He says, abide in me. Believe my word. And lastly, we're told this vine isn't like a regular vine. This is a vine of love. Look at verse 9. <laughs> As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. We're in an age that hates law, hates people being told what to do. They think it's mean. And while such authority can be oppressive and mean, it's not intended to be. And with Christ, it never is. Jesus tells us something very different and very special about his commands. Have you ever wondered why God commands you to do things? Any command, think about it. What command do you not like? Why does he tell you that? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it this way? Jesus said, because I love you. It's how you abide in my love. They are from his love. His word defines love. To reject his word is to reject his love. It's to call God unlovely, and he's not. He says, not the case. God loves us. His word is an evidence of his love for us. He deeply cares for us and desires to be with us. That is the work that his word accomplishes. It keeps us in his love. You know what would be jacked up if God saved us and said nothing? <laughs> you say, make it to me, peace. No. He says, you're mine. Remain with me. This is how you remain with me. It's clear. It's not confusing. Nothing to be confused about. He's told us how to remain. He says stuff. And the things he says is for our joy in him to keep us in his love. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Who do what? Who seek him with their whole heart. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings to hear the word of God taught. Because God speaks. And we need to believe what he says. It testifies of Christ. It tells us to know and abide in him. This is why we have Bible studies. 
It's why we regularly try to spend time in his word, to believe, to know, to abide in his love. This is why we plant churches, to see more people come to know God and to find joy in his name. This is why we rebuke and correct each other with God's word. Because disobedience is unbelief, and sin seeks to sever us from the vine. This is why fathers lead their homes in the word, that the home might abide in Christ. This is why we memorize scripture. We have stored up your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We don't want to be outside your love. The more we know, the more we learn about God, the more able we are to abide in his love. If you keep his word, you abide in his love. You love him. So if you, like the disciple, are wondering, which branch am I? When you hear, you were dead in your sins. You were hostile to God in mind. You were at war with him and always natural to you. But that he loved you and he sent his son to come and die for you, to save you, to save you from your sin that you deserve to be punished for forever and bring you to God freely on his account that you might know him and enjoy him forever. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, you're loved. Shy, you're loved. He loves you. Abide in his word. Isaac, he loves you. Abide in his love. For your joy, Brian, he wants your joy to abide in his love. Keep his word. Abide in his love. Though we cannot see him, we can love him. What's in there? Um, First Peter. <laughs> so perhaps you're thinking, but I don't always keep his law. I don't always keep his commands. Well, I just find it interesting that when Jesus looked at those disciples and said, you're clean, you're in me. A chapter before, he looked Peter dead in his face and said, you're going to deny me three times before this goes down. Uh, We were having dinner the other day talking about it, and Blair reminded us of how the gospel of John ends. You have Peter in front of Jesus. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, tend my sheep, love my people as I've loved you. He said to him again, you know, do you love me? Yes, he said to him, I love you. Tend my sheep. Said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? (laughs) That's crazy. How are you going to be grieved? (laughs) Like, He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Look down at the end of verse 19. He says, follow me. Jesus has factored in our failures. He's factored in our falls. Even so, abide. Believe. Remain. Peter might have been thinking about this. When he wrote verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, what greater joy than to be in Christ To know you and to have the promise to be with you. Help us, Father, we pray. You told us, ask, and it will be given to us. Help us to build ourselves up in this most holy faith and to pray in your spirit and to keep ourselves in your love. Help us to overcome the world by our faith. Help us to evidence our faith by our love. Father, I pray for Del Rey, and I pray, I pray that they would bear much fruit to your glory and to their joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.